Good morning. Um, thank, thank you so much again for letting Kenny and I uh, be with you, um, spend this time with you. Uh, it's a blessing to us. Um, as, as difficult as it can be to, to prepare uh, for something like this, man, it's a, it's a huge blessing. And um, we, we, learn, we learn so much uh, from just the preparation alone. It's really, really wonderful. I was telling Jeff just before the service, um, that I really like missions pastor Jeff, uh, that version. Uh, he, looks, he looks like he's been listening to the Grateful Dead, <laughs> right? Like he's got this, there's a, like a freedom, a looseness, like the top button on his shirt is, is like been undone. And uh, I, di- I dig that. That's cool. Uh, I was letting him know how hip he looks t- today. But um, no, um, it is, it's an honor to be here, and, and there's a lot to cover, and, uh, and, I, and I apologize for yesterday. It was very, uh, I realized, especially after I stepped down out of the pulpit, just how sober that sermon was uh, for us and, and that time of teaching. And so, but I, I do think it's important. I think these are things, these are issues that if we don't address them, um, then there will continue to be uh, systemic arrogance and pride in the midst of our leadership over time. Um, and uh, I, think, I, think that we need to, I think that we need to make sure that our hearts are right before the Lord before we begin talking about church planting, you know, before we, we talk about reproduction. And so today um, we're going to be talking about identifying leaders in our churches that um, have the potential to, to, to take the baton, to take the torch, and to carry this work on um, that's, that's what we desire. That's what we hope for. And so when discussing the next generation, I believe that it's critical for leaders to be able to look across their congregations with hope and faith that every single person in their church has the potential for leadership. I don't think we always think that way. I don't think we have that open-handed uh, view of leadership in our churches. And I think that, that, that's a problem. And I don't, I don't believe that that's blind optimism. Uh, to believe that everyone in your church has the potential to lead. Um, I believe it's the hope of discipleship. I believe that that's the hope of discipleship, and the objective of the pastor is to see everyone in their congregation leading at some level, exercising their gifting uh, the way that God has given it to to them. And so I believe that, that when a person is exercising their gifting, they're leading, right? When they're doing that in power and in faith, Now, as we pursue these ends of establishing leaders, there will be many different kinds of people that we encounter in ministry with many different unique abilities and giftings. Now, with this kind of diversity among the growing leaders in our churches, new questions begin to arise as we consider training leaders. So some of those questions might be, well, how do we identify gifting? in our leadership? How do we do that? How do we begin to, to spot and, and, and to, to consider every individual's unique gifting? Or another question would be, what does it look like to invest more intentionally in our emerging leaders? What does that look like? How, how, do, we, how do we really truly equip them from, for the work that's ahead of them? How do we determine who to ordain? That's a tough question. I mean, we all, we're always grappling with that in, in our own church. Who, do we, who, sh, who needs ordination? 
Who's, who's built for that? Who's ready for that? Who's prepared? Who matches our DNA? Are they leading? Are they fruitful? How do we know if someone has what it takes to plant a church? We can't just send anybody out there. I mean, some of our best leaders would, would be eaten alive. It's, not every person is built for that kind of leadership or that work. And so we have to be discerning. We have to ask the question, who is built for that? How can we trust, or, or who can we trust to actually carry the mantle when we leave? So t- those are tough questions that begin to arise as we look across our congregations and consider where are the leaders? How do we identify them? Now, these kinds of questions remind us that we all must be exceptionally discerning with when, how, and why we promote people in the ministry. It's of the utmost importance that we exercise wisdom and faith, take risks, but also show restraint. We must all determine what kind of leaders that we're going to advance in the ministry. Now, we, we, we say all that, and we consider all that, all the difficulties that, that come out of raising up leaders. Now, knowing all of this, many of us also have the burden of our past experiences in ministry. And, and, and I know a lot of the men in this room, that really my elders, men that have been around, men have, that have been warring for a long time in the ministry, and I... And I've seen some, and I've heard the horror stories. Horror stories of leadership, leadership gone wrong. And we've all got that playing on a reel in the back of our mind as we're making investments and training up leaders and casting a vision and, and considering church planting. At the same exact time, we have a reel playing in the back of our mind with images of those horror stories. We've all seen faithless men fill pulpit, fill pulpit, pulpits. Sorry, I better get a drink. You know, they, um, they kept me up last night. You know, so <clears throat> touring bands, when they're, when they're touring all over the U.S., they stay up late, they party all night, and they trash hotels. Um, the pastors in this fellowship go to Applebee's. <laughs> That's what we do. We eat hot wings. And, uh, and if I don't get in bed by 11 o'clock, I'm a mess. So <laughs> bear with me this morning. They, they kept me up at the Applebee's too late last night. Uh, okay, so we know the horror stories, and we've, we, we've, all seen, we've all seen faithless men fill pulpits. We've witnessed the ordination of novices, have we not? We've watched associate pastors undermine and scheme against their head pastor. We've seen that happen. We are, we are familiar with leaders who use discipleship as a platform for their personal opinions and agendas. You know, they get one-on-one with someone and, and we've seen them exploit those vulnerable and important situations, those scenarios, and undermine, undermine the truth. Make it about them. We've heard stories of deacons and boards conspiring against historic statements of faith. And tearing out the foundation underneath church, from right out from underneath churches. We have observed the smartest and most capable men we have ever met willingly discard the certainty of the words of truth for the sake of pragmatism. 
But how and why does this happen? Now, there's more to say on this topic than 10 conferences could cover. And in fact, I think that's the value of the Certainty Conference is because it continues to establish who we are going to be and we, we learn how to insulate ourselves against crazy. At this, at this very conference, is important to that. Now, for my part, I hope to contrast the, the testimonies today of Jonathan and Joab. Two men, both on the path to leadership, Two men with very similar qualities, but quite distinct character. And that's what we're going to look at. So let's pray, and then, and then we'll dig in. All right? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for the honor of, of being with this wonderful congregation of people. Um, I'm, I'm humbled, um, but I'm thankful. And Lord, I just pray that it be useful that it challenge us where we're at, that it would help us to, to contemplate our churches and the people that we invest in and, and to consider them with great intentionality, that we would develop strategies, that we would put faith first, that we would believe, that we would really truly learn uh, how to take risks on people, but also show restraint when we see character qualities that are concerning. This is a work that your spirit has to superintend. Uh, we cannot trust our cunning, uh, our, our intellect. Uh, we can't even trust our own eyes sometimes. I mean, even David was deceived. Your man. <laughs> and so God, help us. Keep us humble before you. And give us wisdom as it concerns how we make an investment in the next generation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by discussing Jonathan, uh, particularly what we see in him by the way of fearlessness. We're going to talk about two things this morning. We're going to talk about courage. We're going to talk about loyalty. Those are the two things that I'm going to really focus on in this session. Um, now, Jonathan was a fearless man. Jonathan was King Saul's son and captain in his army. In 1 Samuel 13, 13, we learn that Jonathan has a habit of fighting the, good, or the bad guys even when everyone else is resting. Okay, So we see Jonathan going to war and battling against those bad guys even when everyone else is taking a break. Saul builds an army of 3,000 men. 2,000 are hiding in their tents in 1 Samuel 13. But Jonathan has the other thousand, and they're out doing exploits. They're out seizing the day. Now this same spirit we find carry over into chapter 14, where we find Saul and 600 men resting beneath the pomegranate tree. Now pomegranates are a symbol of prestige and indulgence in Scripture. And so there he is, hanging out, chilling, and this is what we find Saul doing so often as a leader. We find him, you know, Goliath for 40 days is, is calling out the nation of Israel and mocking Saul's God. And where is Saul? He's in a tent. He's often, we often find him hiding away in the moments where he should be stepping up. And so while Saul tarries, while, while Saul's hanging out, Jonathan and his armor bearer Go see what they can see. 
they're going to go rile up some Philistines. They're not afraid. And so we're going to start here in 1 Samuel 14, verse 3. And it says this, And the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over unto the Philistine garrisons, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sena. The forefront of the one was situated northward over against Michmash, and the other southward over against Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And his armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Then said Jonathan, Behold, we will pass over unto these men, and we will discover ourselves unto them. And if they say thus unto us, Tarry until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and will not go up unto them. But if they say thus, Come up unto us, then we will go up. For the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. And both of them discovered themselves unto the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they, have, where they have hid themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said unto his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer slew after him. And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men, within, as it were, an half acre of land, which a yoke of oxen might plow. And there was trembling in the host in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled. And the earth quaked, so it was a very great trembling. Now, there is a lot to say about this passage, but there are a few things that I want to hit on that I think are very relevant to the issue of identifying leaders. And so these are the things that we're going to say about Jonathan's courage because I believe that it's unique. And the first thing is this, that Jonathan is a man of zeal and action. He's a man of zeal and action, which is what we want in our leaders. We want men and women that are excited and passionate about the work. And that zeal and that action drives them to behave in such a way that, that, that causes us to see that they're not afraid, that they're courageous, that they, they want to do exploits for the Lord. Jonathan is a man that's, that's willing to go fishing to see, and to see what he might catch, right? Let's go find out. Let's go see what the Lord is up to. He's no rebel, but he is a hellraiser, right? And I think that's important. I think that's important to consider. He's not a rebellious man. In fact, we're going to talk about his loyalty. But the man isn't afraid to battle. He's not afraid of the skirmish. And he's not a hellraiser in the power of his flesh, but in complete confidence that God can do anything. That's the kind of zeal we're looking for. We're looking for men and women that believe that God can do anything. We're looking for foolish faith. Foolish faith. 
He says, come and, and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. We need fearless leaders with audacious faith. That's your first blank. That's what we need. That's what our churches need. We need fearless leaders, courageous men with audacious faith. These are the type of men in our ministry that see a problem and you, and you have to bridle them back for not addressing every problem in the church. Now, sometimes these guys get annoying, right? Because they might see things that, that it's like, dude, chill out, right? Calm down. You know, we might have to bridle them back, but they have the type of zeal that says, look, we can solve this in the power of the Lord. There's something, we, see that hill over there? Let's go take it. Let's go. Let's rush it. Let's, let's bum rush these guys. Oh, there's a, there's a part of our community that we, we'd love to reach. I've got a hundred ideas. Let's just go see what the Lord might do. See, these kind of guys, sometimes you've got to tamp them back a little bit. But you know what? It's way better to deal with a man of zeal, zealous courage, and to teach them how to bridle that and to temper that than it is to have a hundred men with tons of biblical knowledge but no desire to move. I would much rather have men in my ranks that think that they can take every giant that they see than to have lazy men with puffed up heads Leaders, we need leaders that are unafraid to stir up trouble in enemy territory. We need men that are unconcerned with being outnumbered. Too many, too many, too many leaders concerned with numbers. We need men who will take light to dark places without fear. And that's the kind of leader that Jonathan is. He's a man of audacious faith. we also see that Jonathan exercised great discernment when determining whether to engage with the enemy or not. So he's in this situation, and, and they're at the bottom of this hill, and, and, and Jonathan is considering, he's contemplating his approach. Will they come to us, or do we go to them? He's got some strategy in mind, and he puts it before the Lord. There's options here. He's putting it before the Lord. And he's asking the Lord for wisdom. He wants the Lord to reveal to him the way in which he engages. Verse 9 says this, If they say thus unto us, Tarry until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and will not go up unto them. But if they say thus, Come up unto us, then we will go up, uh, for the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. So as rowdy as Jonathan was, he wasn't reckless. He was taking orders from the Lord. In verses 8 through 11, he is observing his circumstances and waiting for God to tip his hand. Does that make sense? And that's the kind of leaders that we want. We want to develop men who are courageous but discerning in their faith. They're willing to wait on the Lord. If they're told to wait, they're willing to do that. They're, 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 they're men under authority, right? These are, these are men that are under the authority of the Lord. 
We need fearless, fearless leaders who know how to wait on God with their swords drawn. Okay? That's action and waiting. Right? You can imagine the, the soldier. He's got his hand on his sword and he's ready to go. Right? He's, he's ready for, for the commands. He's ready for the orders to come down. He's prepared, but he's willing to wait. We need leaders just like this. Third, we see that Jonathan invited others into the fight. That's the kind of leader that he was, and that's the kind of courage that he had as he recognized that, that he, was not, he was not the only one that was supposed to be engaging. Jonathan invited others into the fight. He asked his armor bearer to join him in his endeavors. But not only that, we find that his disciple shared the same heart for the mission that he did. In verse 7, it says this, And his armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. He had captured the heart of his disciple. He's the type of leader that's courageous, but he wants to bring other people along, and so he's reproducing his heart into the lives of other leaders. This is critical. It's a type, it's a type of courage that, that recognizes it's, it's always better, better to fight as a team. If we can manage to, to work together, it's always better. We need fearless leaders who multiply fearless leaders. That's the, that's the kind of courageous leaders that we need. These are men that are willing. Like, here's the deal. And you've met people like this. They've got a courage that is addictive. When other people are around it, they believe that they can do anything also. I'm, tr I'm trying to, my mind is, you know, it's making me think about people like this. And I think, I think Vinny was that way here at FBC. Man, when I, every time I come here, the very first thing I want is I want a testimony on how New Beginnings is going. What an amazing work of God. What a cool thing, right? Leaders that, that see things and are courageous enough to go after it and to, 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 to give it everything that they have, and then they bring other people with them into the work. So, where does this kind of character come from? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Where does this come from? from? What makes this kind of behavior intuitive for people? And I think there's a lot to say about that. I think there's a lot to say about that, but I think there's one key point that we need, and that's this. A true leader's courage is sourced in their commitment to God's mission. That's it. Their source of, uh, of, of courage is an absolute 100%. hunger, desire, fervor to live and abide within the mission of God. So you've got, you've got these men in their tents and King Saul is like, he's got no battle plan. He's got no action in mind. But Jonathan has a burning desire in his heart 
to see God glorified in the nation of Israel. He, could, he couldn't get over it. it was, he was obsessing over it. And it caused him to do things that other men couldn't do. He was committed to the work. Deuteronomy 31.6 says this, Be strong and of a good courage, fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee nor forsake thee. And I believe that this was what was in Jonathan's heart. Note, I think this is important. Note that in chapter 13, Jonathan was responsible for a military initiative that resulted in thousands of Philistine casualties. I mean, he, that was a big deal. That battle in 13, that was a big deal. And they, they took a lot of Philistines down. But in this chapter, we see Jonathan kill about 20 people. And he, in, in both instances, he attacks with the same amount of courage and zeal. The numbers aren't a concern to him. The territory, it's of no concern. In a valley or on a hill, wherever it is, he's going in the name of the Lord. We see the same type of thing in, 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 in Acts. We see in, in Acts chapter 2, we see 3,000 people come to Christ. In the next chapter, Peter is satisfied with leading one to the Lord. He is focused on the mission of the Lord. He's committed to the mission. He's not concerned with the measurements of success. He's just concerned with his willingness to obey, which is what we talked about yesterday. Now, I want to point out that our anti-hero today, Joab, was also fearless. Joab was also a fearless man. Joab served as David's field marshal for many years. He was a complicated man. He was ruthless in his dealings. In fact, Joab may be one of the most uh, fearless military strategists in all of Scripture. We might not find another man quite like Joab in, in the entirety of the Bible. He was a unique mind, and he absolutely was courageous. In 2 Samuel 8, Joab executed David's plan to destroy the Edomites. In 2 Samuel 10, Joab played a critical role in defeating the Syro-Ammonite coalition. Joab certainly played a, a, a part in the success of David's wars against the Philistines in 2 Samuel 5.17, the Moabites in 2 Samuel 8.2, the king of Zobah, 2 Samuel 8, verses 3 through 4, and the Syrians in 2 Samuel 8, 5 through 6. He would have been involved in all of those fights. He was brilliant, no doubt about it, and courageous. He was unafraid. This dude was no joke. But Joab, he probably proved his, his fearlessness most notably early in his military career in his brilliant capture of Jerusalem from the hands of the Jebusites. And so I want to look at that real quick. First Chronicles chapter 11, verse 4 says, and David and all Israel went to Jeru Jerusalem, which is Jabus, where the Jabus, uh, Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. And the inhabitants of Jabus said to David, Thou shalt not come hither. Nevertheless, David took the castle of Zion, which is the city of David. And David said, Whosoever smiteth the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. So Joab, the son of Zariah, 
went first up, uh, up and was chief. And David dwelt in the castle, therefore they called it the city of David. And he built the city round about, even from Milo round about. And Joab repaired the rest of the city. So David waxed greater and greater. The Lord of hosts was with him. Man, David says, look, whoever can take the city um, will be chief among my captains. He'll, he'll be the man. You know, it's interesting to me that David faced similar opportunities. When, when David took uh, Goliath down, there was a promise from King Saul, wasn't there? Hey, whoever, whoever does this is going to be a chief. He's the man. I'm going to promote that guy. And, and, and all, you heard all the soldiers are like, oh, that guy's going to be rich, whoever that is. And then a 15-year-old boy shows up. He's like, I could do that. Let's do it. Also, I don't know if you remember, but, but, but uh, man, David did a lot to earn his wife, Michal. <laughs> you know, there was a promise from Saul, and David's like, she's hot, let's go. <laughs> you need some foreskins? I got you, man. <laughs> I, was, I, just tried, I always try to imagine what that situation was like when he showed up with those foreskins. I mean, it was like a bag, like Santa Claus, like a bag over his shoulder like this, just got the foreskins. But here's Joab, he's got this opportunity. It's a great opportunity, and, and, he, and he's like, let's do it. And he does. I mean, it doesn't give us much information about his strategy, but boy, this, this dude pulled it off. And David had what he wanted. He had Jerusalem. And so, and so here we find Joab getting promoted. A faithful leader must be courageous. But listen, courage alone is not an accurate ind indicator of faithfulness. There are lots of courageous yet worldly people. I mean, we all know people in the secular world that are courageous. Courage alone is not an accurate indicator of faithfulness. See, Joab, he was a complicated man. And I think we need to take a moment to see just, just what made Joab make his, made his clock tick, okay? The first mention of Joab in the Bible is when his armies meet Abner. And the armies of the house of Saul uh, meet with, with, um, with, with David's army at the pool of Gibeon in 2 Samuel chapter 2. And after some banter between, I love the trash talk, right? Like Saul and Abner, like they're trash talking with each other, you know, back and forth, cursing at each other, calling each other wussies, you know, that's how I imagine it. Um. And so after this boastful banner between them, Abner suggests that, the, that, that they both choose 12 young men to settle their disagreement. Let's let them fight. Let's watch the men play. And so Joab agrees, and the, and the 24 soldiers that fight that day, they each die at each other's hands. 24 men dead. Men like pawns. And then this precipitated a larger skirmish between the armies in which the house of David won, sending Abner and his men into flight. So I don't know if you remember this story, but they take off. They take off running. But Asahel, Joab's brother, was swift of foot. He was, he was a man that, that had great speed. And so he takes off after Abner one-on-one. -on -one. He's going to catch Abner. Abner. Abner's out there running, and Asahel is right on his heels. 
Abner cries out. He says, you don't want to follow me, bro. And he gives him two opportunities. He gives him two warnings. Look, turn back. You don't want to do this. You don't want this fight. And Asahel does not relent. And so Abner was the better warrior. And, he, and he, so he kills, he kills Asahel. Not long after this, you fast forward a bit, um, under the, the failed oversight of Ishbosheth, okay, this is after Saul has died. Ishbosheth tries to take over the house of Saul, but he's not a very good, he's not a very effective leader. And, uh, you know, he accuses Abner of different things, and Ab- Abner, after a while, becomes disenchanted with Ishbosheth's leadership. And so Abner goes to negotiate with D- David a peace treaty. He wants to lay down arms. He wants to join forces. And at the joining of the forces of the house of Dada, David and, and, and the house of Saul, then there'll, there'll be a joining of Judah and Israel and everything will be good and David will have what he wanted, right? He wanted peace. And, I, and by all accounts, I believe Abner's desire was truly to unify Israel. He was willing to capitulate in order to restore peace in the nation. This was a decisive opportunity for David. This was a really big deal. But Joab foils everything. In 2 Samuel, uh, Samuel chapter 3, verse 24, it says, Then Joab came to the king and said, What hast thou done? Behold, Abner came unto thee. Why is it that thou hast sent him away and he is quite gone? In other words, he's saying to David, Look, Abner came and visited you and you didn't kill him? Do you even know what you're doing? Can you imagine? Thou knowest Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive thee. He's lying to you. And to know thy going out and thy coming in and to know all that thou doest. And when Joab was come out from David, he sent messengers after Abner. Abner hadn't gotten that far away. So he sends Abner, uh, uh, messengers after Abner, which brought him again from the well of Syrah, but David knew it not. He was unaware. And when Abner was returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly. Hey, come here, I want to talk to you for a second. And smote him there under the fifth rib that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. So what do we see here? We see that Joab was motivated by revenge and the potential loss of his power. Right? In his mind, if Abner joins his army to David's army, well, now he's got to share his military leadership with another great military mind, and he's unwilling to do that. So here we see him motivated by a personal agenda. And peace now, peace in Israel is prolonged because of one man's pride. <laughs> so here's our key point. A deficient leader's courage is sourced in their sometimes subtle Sometimes subtle commitment to a personal agenda. It's not always easy to spot, is it? It takes time. These things reveal themselves over time. These character flaws begin to reveal themselves in a man over time. What distinguished Joab from Jonathan ultimately was this. Their view of glory. What distinguished Joab from Jonathan was their distinct views of what glory meant. 
Jonathan's courage was sourced in God's glory, wasn't it? But Joab's courage was sourced in vain glory. They both had courage. They were both men of war. They both did great exploits, but Jonathan's courage was sourced in God's glory, and Joab's courage was sourced in vain glory. Joab always was looking out for his best interest. That's what he was up to. So what does this look like practically? I don't know. It could look like many, uh, many different things. It could look like men in ministry with pet objectives that don't fit within the vision or strategy of the ministry. It could look like men who always seem to have a peculiar doctrine that the pastor just doesn't get. Yeah, the, hey, this is, this, is, this is stuff that pastor so-and-so just doesn't get. So let me explain it to you. Let's do a Bible study at my house. These are men that are shrewd in their dealings with people. They have no grace. They're not concerned with the heart of those that they deal with. They're all business, all the time. These are men that artfully turn the most innocuous conversations around to center on them. You met people like this? You're having conversation and, and you know, you're talking and it seems like they always have a, a, a way of turning the conversation back around onto their stuff. They're looking for, for ways to, to talk about them. These are men without filters. They don't, they don't understand the nuance of the environment that they're in. They're willing to just say whatever comes to their mind because they're, they're so self-righteous that they believe they just have to say anything. It's just like diarrhea of the mouth. No discernment, no sobriety in the way that they address people. These are men with opinions on matters that they don't actually even know about. You know, there's a lot of times in, in ministry where pastors are making really important decisions. And they spent hours and hours of their life considering it and praying about it and talking about it. And then they make the decision. But you know, so-and-so, you know, elder so-and-so has got a lot to say about it. Deacon so-and-so just can't, he just, you know, up in arms. Full of opinions, full of thoughts. And they don't actually even know what went into that decision making. Just pure arrogance. There are men like this, listen, everywhere. These are men who always seem to, ju to, to justify not quite doing what they were asked to do. They did it, but not quite right. You know, like, like Saul versus the Amalekites. It's not, I did it. What, what? I did it. I did what you asked. But it's not quite what I asked, is it? That's the kind of person that Joab was. A fearless man who was also carnal. And here's the thing about men like that. Fearless men that are also carnal may advance a ministry while simultaneously preparing it for its failure. It might look like it's growing. It look, might look like it's moving and, and things are looking great and, it, and they're building and people are coming and attending. And listen, the whole time, because of their heart, because of the source of their courage, they're preparing it for destruction. 
Now, how can I know? How, how, how can I be discerning? How, how can I know or identify this kind of leader in my ranks? This is a leader that may be effective, but the question is this. Here's the question. Do they leave peace in their wake? Or do they leave dysfunction in their wake? Everyone leaves a wake. Everyone that's moving forward and courage leaves a wake behind them. But is the wake behind them peaceable? Or is it dysfunctional? Romans 14, 19 says this. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. You know, the work of leadership is the work of edification. We know that, right? That's the objective of the church. That we would come together, we would serve one another, another and edify the body for the glory of the Lord. That's what ministry is about. And so ministry leaders have to be about that objective. They have to be edifiers. And so you have to look, like when they do ministry in their wake, do they leave edification? Do they leave peaceable ministry? Do they leave people who are bought into the vision? Do they leave behind them other courageous believers that can see the vision of your church, that believe in the DNA, that hold to the doctrines, and then commit themselves to that? Is that the kind of wake that they leave? Or are the people that they're training up, are the people that they're investing in, as dysfunctional as they are? That's how you know. That's how you identify good or bad leadership. So that's that on the issue of courage. Let's talk about loyalty. We know that there is, there is a lack of loyalty in the church today, is there not? In our day and age, church is like, going to church is like selecting, you know, the clothes that you wear, right? It's fashionable. It's cultural. And so people make decisions about church based on how good the worship is or whether or not people are like them there. You know, and so, and if, and if ch- church, you know, churches, I didn't enjoy it this week, or so-and-so said something I didn't like, they just go find another church. There's very little loyalty in the ministry in 2023. We see it time and time again. And this is the thing that really hurts the, the pastor, is that you can give, you can give someone hundreds of hours, even thousands of hours of investment. And at the end of the day, people often just do whatever is best for their flesh. I have to coach young disciples about this all the time. You know, they get paired. They meet weekly, two, two and a half hours a pop. They devote time and energy. They introduce this person to their family and they invite them in. They share life. They pray together. They weep together. They give, they give each other everything that they got. But then that person just leaves. <laughs> they just like don't even acknowledge that the church just poured every bit of good resource that they had, exactly what they had available, good resource. They pour that into that person and then that person's just like, eh. Didn't like, didn't, didn't like that little thing. I mean, forget the fact that I had a volunteer therapist for nine months. For, for, forget the fact that someone loved me unconditionally despite the fact 
that I totally suck. I'm a terrible human being and I can't have any functional relationships and this person just spent time with me for month upon month upon month, year upon year and then people leave, don't they? They leave. It's cutting. It's painful. It's terrible. Now we know that our ultimate allegiance is to Christ, right? Not to men. No one, need, no one needs to be loyal to Troy or to Sam or to Brian or Rob or whoever it might be. But here's the deal. But if, if, if men desire to be enlisted for Christ's sake, then they will need to be men under authority within the local church. They have to be. They have to be. It's required of them. If a person is saying, if a person is saying, I want to be loyal to Christ, well then guess what? They need to be loyal to a church and to a pastor. They have to be. It's the only way for them to count for the kingdom. Proverbs 26 says, most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness. But a faithful man, who can find? So the search is on, (laughs) isn't it? How do we identify the loyal men within the next generation of leaders? How do we do that? Well, let's start with Jonathan. In 1 Samuel, we see David, son of Jesse, exalted from a faithful uh, shepherd to a promised and anointed king in just a few chapters. In a short period of time, he finds himself promoted and faithfully serving alongside King Saul and devoted to him, despite the fact that he's a compromised leader, David is loyal to Saul. David becomes submitted, a submitted soldier, a loyal soldier who served honorably and without question. Nonetheless, as we know, Saul begins to feel threatened by David's growing popularity in Israel, and in turn, he threatens David's life. We know that, right? So David spends the next decade on the run, surviving incredibly difficult circumstances. Now, what's relevant for us this morning is this. In the midst of all of that drama, in the midst of all of that drama, Saul's son Jonathan becomes dear friends with David. They're like this. Their bond is exceptional. It's a, it's, a, it's a true model of unconditional love and pastors would do well to build relationships like this. It's beautiful what they have as a friendship. It's exceptional. 1 Samuel 18.1 says, And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Oh, that we would build these relationships within our local churches. What a beautiful description of friendship. These men were loyal to one another. And as we saw yesterday, so loyal, so loyal, that David made room for Jonathan's son at his table long after Jonathan had passed away and Saul's reign had ended. I mean, we don't read about it. We don't know about it, but... But we, can, we, we watch and observe as David gets old. And Mephibosheth was just there, living his best life because David was loyal to Jonathan. They had a loyalty to one another. 
But we want to analyze Jonathan's loyalties to David because it's very interesting, interesting and I believe it's super complicated. I think it's complicated. Here's the first thing that we need to understand is that Jonathan's loyalties were extremely complex. One of the wildest things about Jonathan is that he was able to remain loyal to his father, who was absolutely insane, right? And remain loyal to Israel and the cause of, 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 of Jehovah and remain loyal to David all at the same time. How did he manage to do that? What a man of integrity. How did he do that? In the midst of all of this controversy, we must acknowledge how upright Jonathan remained despite the complexity of his relationships. Saul was aggressively trying to persuade Jonathan to see things his way. And yet Jonathan was faithful to advocate for David and represent him well. 1 Samuel 19.1 says this, And Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, seeketh to kill thee. Now therefore, I pray thee, take heed to thyself until the morning and abide in a secret place and hide thyself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where thou art. And I will commune with my father of thee. And what I see, that I will tell thee. And Jonathan spake good to David unto, uh, unto Saul, his father, and said unto him, let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he hath not sinned against thee, and because his works have been to thee, uh, thee were very good. For he did put his life in his hand and slew the Philistine. And the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. Thou sawest it and didst rejoice. Wherefore, then wilt thou sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? And Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan, and Saul sware, as the Lord liveth, he shall not be slain. Now we know that's not how things go. But we, we, we know that Saul, Saul isn't convinced for long. And in the next few chapters, they're filled with Jonathan playing the mediator, striving for unity. What a guy. What a unique person. I mean, and he sticks with his dad, right? Like, I think one of the things that we always think to ourselves is why didn't Jonathan just go join himself to David, David and his mighty men? I mean, he wouldn't have lost his life. But he stuck with his father. Why? Because his loyalties had priority. And he was willing to negotiate all those things at the same time. There was priorities in the way in which he saw his loyalties. This, this crazy situation proves to us something very important. It's this. We need loyal leaders who can discern truth from lies. Because ultimately, Jonathan's ability to do that is what gave him the capacity to serve well. We need loyal leaders who can discern truth from lies. See, weak men are easily deceived. And we can't, afford, we can't afford for our leaders to be easily deceived. We need men like Jonathan who can, can go into complex situations and say, that's not true, but that is. That, that's, that's an inaccuracy. That's a poor representation of the truth. But that over there, that's true. 
And then he can, he, can, he can live in that and he can negotiate it because he's a man of wisdom. He can discern truth from lies. Next we see in Jonathan's loyalty, we see personal sacrifice. We see personal sacrifice. On the surface, it seems uh, against Jonathan's best interest to be close to David, doesn't it? I mean, he's the heir apparent. And from the outside looking in, it looks as though David is trying to usurp his inheritance of the kingdom. I mean, the average person in the nation of Israel would have been like, their thoughts would have been, David is a rebel, and he's seeking to usurp Jonathan's throne, what rightfully belongs to him. But Jonathan didn't see it that way. Even Saul points this out. In 1 Samuel 20, 30, Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said unto him, Thou son of the perverse, rebellious woman, do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion and under the confusion of thy mother's nakedness? I mean, this dude is still in the camp serving his father, and yet his father is accusing him of being in, Je- in, in the son of Jesse, David's camp. Listen to what he says. For as long as the son of Jesse liveth upon the ground, thou shalt not be established nor thy kingdom. Wherefore now send and, f- and fetch him unto me, for he shall surely die. In other words, do you not know that this guy is going to take your throne that belongs to you after I pass away? But Jonathan's faith in God made his faithfulness to David possible. His commitment to the Lord made his commitment to David easy. Despite all the inherent contradictions within their relationship, Jonathan swore his allegiance to his friend knowing that God was with David, that he was the anointed one. He knew that. He knew that God's hand was on David and he committed himself to that. And charity seeketh not her own. There is no mixture of greed in her. Jonathan wasn't after what he could have. He was after what God wanted. And it led, him, it led him to be a man of great sacrifice. And so here's the other thing. We need loyal leaders who will resist covetousness. When you lead, there's always a temptation. There's always a temptation to want more. To have the thing that you deserve. To get your way. There's, there's always a temptation in the flesh to be that way. Jonathan didn't have that. His loyalty and his devotion to the Lord and to David allow him, allowed him to resist what everyone else was saying belonged to him. And so he refused covetousness. These are men whose loyalties extend beyond what they get out of their relationships. There's too many people that see every relationship as transactional as an opportunity to to further or advance their cause. How can I manipulate this individual, this situation, to further my cause? There's so many leaders that think this way. We can't afford to be men like that. The third thing is this. Jonathan knows loyalty means adversity. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Jonathan discovered the hard way that choosing to remain loyal to David would mean a life of danger and difficulty. 1 Samuel 20, 30, we see that. We see that. We see that the result of 
Jonathan's loyalty ended up with him seeing his father throwing javelins at him, (laughs) cursing him. I mean, you can imagine, have you ever been in a house? I mean, maybe your house has been like this before. You grew up in a house like this where the family is like really contentious and there's always fighting and yelling. I imagine that for Jonathan. I imagine Saul just yelling at Jonathan and provoking him to, to anger, but Jonathan just remaining calm, devoted to mediation, Devoting, devoted to making it worth work despite the fact that Saul's throwing javelins at him. And so this leads us to understand this. We need loyal leaders who won't faint in the day of adversity. Too many men are faint of heart and their loyalty stops when things get hard. When things get difficult, they stop. Proverbs 24.10 says, if thou faint... Uh, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. So here's the point, here's the key point that we need to take away here. A biblical leader's loyalty is sourced in faith in God's plan. Jonathan knew that David was the anointed and Jonathan was devoted to making that work despite the fact that he remained loyal to his father. So it's not, listen, there ain't a perfect pastor in this room. I mean, all of us have weaknesses. All of us have blind spots. None of us are righteous outside of the glory of of the gift of Christ. None of us. None of our churches are perfect. And the pastors know that above anybody Above anyone else, the pastors know that. You think you know something the pastor doesn't? I'd be shocked. Pastors know the weaknesses of their churches. I mean, they wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it. You understand that, right? And they can't go back to sleep. 3 a.m., a pastor often is laying in their bed thinking about the church and praying before the Lord about the weaknesses that they see. And I believe that we need to raise up biblical leaders that are loyal to God's plan. And when they're loyal to God's plan, then it won't be a concern for them to submit to their pastors and to their churches. It won't be concerning for them. It won't be disconcerting. It'll be an easy thing to do. And flaws and all, they will devote themselves to the work and they will not faint in the day of adversity. And they will fight the good fight and they will negotiate the complexities of ministry. And they will remain loyal to the work. Now let's talk about Joab's loyalty. Now, good old Joab was loyal to David too. His loyalty to David was exemplified in the defeat of Rabbah. 2 Samuel 12, 26, And Joab fought against Rabbah of the children of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and have taken the city of waters. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it lest I take the city and it be called after my name. And David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took their, their king's crown from off his head. The weight whereof was a talent of gold with the precious stones. And it was set on David's head. And he brought forth the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought forth the people that were therein and put them under saws and, and under harrows of iron and under axes of iron and made them pass through the brickland. And thus did he unto all the cities of the children of Ammon. So David and all the people returned unto Jerusalem. So what did Joab do? He's about to defeat the city of Rabbah. 
And because of his loyalty to David, he says, I don't want to defeat the city. I want you to do it. Because I think, that, I think that that symbolizes your leadership. I think it's right for you to take this opportunity. So gather the people, come and camp against it, and then I'll stand back and I'll let you take the city. I'll let you ride in on the white horse. I'll let you have the crown, and I'll let you have all of the acknowledgement of this battle. That's loyalty, is it not? Clearly, Joab cared for David. But the problem is that Joab was loyal to David even in sin and error. For instance, Joab is complicit in the murder of Uriah. And David's command for him to to leave Uriah in battle was his complicity. See, See, Joab was willing to even let David and himself sin against the Lord to get the job done. That's his, that's his kind of loyalty. But I want to point out the adjacent truth related to Joab's leadership. Joab was an opportunist with shifting loyalties. He was only loyal to David and his cause until he felt the tide shifting. And here's the key point. A deficient leader's loyalty is contingent on the anticipated outcomes. A deficient leader's loyalty is contingent on the anticipated outcomes. In other words, these are men that weigh their options in light of how it might benefit them personally. So they're loyal not based on what God thinks, but what, uh, on what will advance their cause, on what they're doing. So let's expand upon this briefly in, the, in, the, in terms of the story. In the latter years of David's rulership, Joab gets caught up in the intrigue surrounding the anticipated power vacuum of David and his imminent death. So David is getting close to death and Joab can see the writing on the wall. And so it was David's son, Adonijah, who sought to claim his father's throne in 1 Kings chapter 1. And so he campaigns vigorously for support within the kingdom. He's trying to gather support, right? right, We're watching politicians do this right now, right? The, the, the debates and all that stuff and, and all the polls, we see tr- people trying to consolidate power. So Adonijah starts reaching out and trying to convince other people that he's worthy to be king, but without any consultation from David. And so Joab and the high priest Abiathar, they backed Adonijah and threw their collective political influence behind him. And now with the support of the commander-in-chief of the king's troops, And the head of the nation's religious order, Adonijah seemed to have excellent prospects for achieving his objectives. But as we know, all of his hopes were dashed when secretly there's a coronation of David's young son Solomon. And his kingship is confirmed by all the nation of Israel. So he he is appointed king, he's a firm king, he's ordained. And he's brought before the nation of Israel and everyone's so excited and everyone's, everyone now sees that David's man is Solomon. So Adonijah's attempt had failed and his followers were marked for destruction by the new king. So what we see is that Joab betrayed David. His loyalty had limits because of his lust. That's what we were talking about yesterday. His loyalty had limitations because of the lust that he held in his heart. 
Now here's the question. Do we know how to spot and genuinely recognize these tendencies in growing leaders? The question is, can we correct it? I believe that these things are correctable. With good pastors and and devotion of time and energy and faith and prayer, I think a lot of these things are correctable, especially if we spot them early. Can Can we be wise enough not to promote the opportunists in our ministry despite how charismatic and skilled they are? Can we resist? Can we, can we possibly resist promoting men who are charismatic? Everybody loves so-and-so. Look at how skilled they are. Look at how much potential they have. Look at all the potential. Look how evangelical they are and their behavior and, and people listen to them. Can we resist promoting men like that when we know that their loyalty has limits? Can we see it and then do something about it? See, this is the problem with David. David should have seen this betrayal coming. He should have seen it. He should have seen the writing on the wall. And maybe maybe it was that David liked the fact that Joab was a get-or-done type of leader and and he had a, a, a record to prove that he was effective. Maybe he liked that about Joab and that's why he kept him close, right? Maybe, maybe it was because Joab was his family and he felt he had to be, he had to be loyal to Joab because they were, they were family. Despite the signs, even King David trusted and promoted a man who had demonstrable character flaws. So the question on the floor today is, will we be discerning enough to avoid making the same mistake in our ministries? You know, in Scripture, you learn a lot about men by observing how their testimony ends. During the years of David's hiding, we we sadly learned that Jonathan died in battle. Right? You've read that at the end of 1 Samuel. A noble death. Live and die by the sword, right? A noble death, fighting for Israel and supporting his father to the very end. Listen to how David laments Jonathan's life. 2 Samuel 1.25 says, How are the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thine high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? It was not in God's perfect will that David would have Jonathan by his side during his reign. And sadly, we will never know what David's kingdom would have looked like with Jonathan as his right-hand man. But how does the ministry of Joab end? After he betrayed David, Joab's flight, uh, Joab took flight to the horns of the altar. And his, his desire for Peace were vain. Solomon dispatched Beniah uh, to execute the old warrior. Okay, so Beniah falls on Joab, and Joab ends up dying the way in which he killed Abner. His deeds of violence, according to the law, must be dealt with, and, and they had to be dealt with before the kingdom could have peace. Solomon's words were not words for a warrior, but for a traitor 
I mean, Joab had been loyal to, loyal to David all those years, and yet Solomon's words did not, did not frame Joab as that wonderful warrior. He framed him as the traitor that he was. 1 Kings 2.32, And the Lord shall return his blood upon his own head, who fell upon two men more righteous and better than he, and slew them with the sword. My father David, not knowing thereof to wit, Abner, the son of Ner, captain of the host of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, captain of the host of Judah. Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the, the head of his seed forever. But upon David and upon his seed and upon his house and upon his throne shall there be peace forever from the Lord. I want to remind you that despite all of his might, his feats, his positions of authority, Joab was not listed among David's mighty men. That long list of men that were loyal and mighty for the, for the sake of David's kingdom, Joab's not listed there. And this is his legacy. Of these two men, both were courageous and both were loyal, but only one was worthy of promotion. And so the looming question over this conference is, how can we know if the next generation will run their leg of, of the course well? How do we know if the torch will be passed? And I think there's a few questions that we need to ask ourselves from Scripture. And so if you're writing stuff down, write this down. Will they keep what's committed to them? 2 Timothy 1.14. Will they keep what's committed to them? Second, will they hear the word and keep it and bring forth fruit with patience? Luke 8.15. Will they hear the word and keep it and use it to bring forth fruit to the kingdom? Is that the type of person that they are? The other question would be this. Will they buy the truth and sell it not? Proverbs 23, 23. Will they buy the truth and sell it not? Will they not exploit the truth of God's word? Will they hold to it as true? and is pure, willing to give everything for it, but willing to do anything to give it away for free? Will they fight a good fight? Will they finish the course? 2 Timothy 4.7, will they do that? Will they, will they fight a good fight and see that course through the end the way that Jonathan did? As you prepare to hand off the baton to the next runner, to the next church planner, to the next missionary, to the next discipleship pastor or youth director, your best prediction for the outcome of their race is to measure their faithfulness and character right now in the midst of the work. We must commit to promoting men and women of faith, zeal, obedience, and Christ-like character and not men of opportunity and compromise. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Um, Lord, forgive my throat, forgive my mouth, my stumbling lips. Lord, I pray that you would have your way with these leaders and with these people. I trust you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. <clears throat>